So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would illumine our path, that you would light our feet, that we might know how we ought to live and where we ought to go and how to conduct ourselves before our God in a pleasing, godly, and sanctifying way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a wonderful declaration of the 13 United States of America in 1776 on July 4th. It was adopted, uh, even though it was written beforehand. When It says this, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and, the, and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's an extraordinary statement and one which we have heard in recent days. Certain words were left out out of a concern for the maintenance of abortion and the death of children in our country, which is to that person's utter shame, and to all those who would hold to a view of independent personal autonomy of women to make a choice on death over the life of another being. Nonetheless, these things are truly affirmed in God's word. Uh, Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I I think uh, what, 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 what our present generation is busy doing is indeed affirming those rights, at least in some degree, uh, will set life aside. Uh, but liberty, I should be free to do and to live as I please. That certainly is the spirit of the age. And, and how dare you tell me how I ought to live in my own home or how I ought to live in, in whatever sphere or wherever I want to go or, or to work. But more than that, the pursuit of happiness is certainly the, the desire of this generation. The pursuit of happiness. What does that look like? And certainly here in our our, our secular government, the pursuit of happiness means whatever would delight and would please 
settle in, 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 in one's own personal peace, make one feel good, whatever that may be. And yet for the believer, that's a very different thing. What is affirmed by our founding fathers was very, very much a very different thing. The pursuit of happiness was something altogether different. But here, within this passage, the pursuit of happiness is defined very, very clearly in the pursuit of joy in our Savior. So as believers, we pursue, we have that inalienable right as citizens of the United States of America, but we have a higher citizenship that we we belong to the kingdom of God and we are awaiting an unshakable kingdom. And we have an inalienable right given to us by God to life, to liberty in the confines of his law, and in light of the word of God and the full enjoyment and stewardship of all that God has made and the pursuit of happiness. And where does our happiness come from? Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage, I'm sorry, I've already gotten into preaching before I've even introduced the ideas here, but but concerning this salvation, he begins with in verse 10. And, and so that brings us back into the previous section, and I wanted very much to treat verses 8 through 9. I'd love to spend one week on them alone, never mind any other further words, but but think of what you read there, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That sounds like happiness to me. That sounds like the the pursuit of happiness. Well, we learn some things in this passage concerning our salvation and, and, and concerning the nature of what we enjoy in Christ Jesus, how we appreciate, how we have taken in, how we live in light of what God has done for us concerning this salvation. Well, what salvation? Well, the immediate context clarifies for us in verses three through five, whereby we have been, we have been according to God's great mercy caused to be born again. That is where salvation begins. For us, in our experience of it. Certainly our salvation has begun before the foundations of the earth. When God determined before creating anything that he would save. He would save an elect people. A predestined people unto himself. And he would do so through Jesus. As we know him. But the eternal son of God. Who had volunteered to be our savior. So he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation yet ready to be revealed in the last time. You have already come into possession of the salvation which Christ has given to you, at least in part, but there is so much more to be shown to you. It is yours. It is kept in heaven for you. It is not waiting for some, some, some future declaration of our justification, but rather it is ours now. We are not yet in full possession of it. We are awaiting what has been promised. We are awaiting what is sure. 
what is our steadfast hope. And so as we consider our salvation, this salvation which God the Father, according to his great mercy, has caused and has brought about, we look at salvation and we must see it and we must examine. And according to this passage, salvation is to be first, and there will be five points, first, believed, loved, and enjoyed. We think about salvation, we consider salvation, verse 10, as to this salvation, and that's what we are discussing. And so what, what is, what should we think? How should we respond? Well, it should be believed, loved, and enjoyed. And how can we respond to this salvation? Salvation cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. As we think about salvation, the salvation we have received, the fundamental nature of what we have received is Jesus Christ. Yes, we have received the forgiveness of sins, pardon. We have received a, 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 a heart of flesh. Uh, we have had that inner work, that inner secret sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We have been co- converted. We have been adopted into the family of God. We will eventually be glorified in the presence of God. But all of it is summarily comprehended in being fundamentally given Jesus Christ as our Savior. That is what God has done for you and for me. He has given us His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Salvation can, as we enjoy it and believe and love, salvation cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. To believe in God, to receive salvation, to experience new birth, to stand in His power is to love and to believe in Him. And that is all that God calls for. I was reading yesterday an article that was sent to me, and an individual was saying, you need to find a good church, pastor of a mega church. You need to find a really good church. And what I mean is people who love the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith and social justice. You see what he did there? He added something to justification. For him, he was saying, we must be justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we must take to our cause social justice. God makes no such complaint or or, or requirement of a believer, only faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ with no further addition, whether that is social justice or or the giving of of great resources or or physical activity of of service until the day that we die or of acts of penance or or of prayers or offered or any other thing. Nothing can be added to our justification except for faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ alone will save your soul from hell. Nothing else will. Scripture divides the great mass of humanity into two groups. Only two groups. Believing and unbelieving, lost and saved, dead, in trespasses and sins, made alive with Christ. One way or the other, those are the only divisions between mankind. And those who love and believe in and enjoy Jesus Christ and all others, those who love themselves and love others and love their money and possessions and their self-image or some other present or future without Jesus Christ, They are lost, but you, you are not. So Peter, 
Peter expounds in verses 8 through 9 of the current condition of believers. And maybe you already knew this, but this is what he says. And I, I find it almost initially puzzling. And he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There are two things Peter's doing here. One, he is pointing out the obvious. This is how believers are, this side of eternity, this side of the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. We do not see him, but we know him. We do not observe him with our eyes and our senses, or at least our eyes and our ears, but we do hear him in his word. We do not observe him with our eyes, but nonetheless we we see him by faith. So, Paul, so Peter's pointing out the obvious. This is, this is how believers live in this world. We believe in what we cannot see. We have faith in what we cannot observe. But that is the nature of faith. But he also calls for something else. I, I think he's observing what, I think he's making an observation about what, what our condition is in this world, the obvious things. We would almost say, well, duh. We know Peter. We, we believe, we love, we trust, we have joy in him, because even though we do not see him. But, but I think he's doing something more. He's pointing out the obvious so that he can make the point of what we ought to do and how we ought to respond to that. But believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's where we disconnect. This is where we disconnect. To believe and love and enjoy. We, we, we readily affirm that I need to believe. I need to have faith in Jesus Christ. We readily affirm the necessity of faith. The faith in the one whom we cannot see. Faith in the one in whom we believe. The one who is cast upon the cross. Who was dead, buried, rose and ascended. Who was witnessed by more than 500 plus witnesses. Who spoke to all of his apostles into whose hands Thomas thrust his fingers. The one, the perfect Savior who sat and ate, who hugged, who spoke, who consumed fish, who drank water, and who ascended into the presence of God the Father with eyewitnesses who beheld him. The disconnect is where he speaks in verse 8 and he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How do we respond to salvation? Where is our heart and our head with regard to the full enjoyment of our salvation? This one characteristic, I think, shades the entirety of one's life. It supersedes every other Distinction. It's the million dollar question. This decides your eternal destiny and nothing else. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love? Now, now don't tell me, yes, I have faith. Ah, but, but Peter moves on from faith and, and he begins with love. He started with love. He said love and then faith, you believe. And then there is joy. Faith. Love and faith give place to joy. And so we begin with the first. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Does your love 
Does your faith then move into a joyful expression of longing for him, a desire to see him, a daily thanksgiving for him? Do you believe in Christ? Do you love Christ? Are you rejoicing in Jesus Christ, your Savior? He is our salvation. We're talking in this passage about salvation. Verse 10 clarifies that. As to this salvation, we'll say much more about it. But it begins and ends with Christ. And whether or not we love and believe in Him, whether or not our faith in Him has led to joy. Do you long to be with Him? Are you searching, looking intently, examining your salvation? Do you marvel? Do you say with me, I I can't believe that Christ has saved me. I can't believe that I have salvation. I can't believe that this salvation which I enjoy even now and have received the first fruits is nothing in comparison to what has been reserved in heaven for me. There is so much more to be shown me in the day to come when Christ comes with shout of acclamation with all those who have risen from the seas and the ground and we ourselves too will be caught up into the air with him. Do we count the ways of God's love? Do we closely examine? Do we research? Do we open the word and consider, where should I go to consider the salvation that I have received in Christ Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the way of salvation, comprehended in the entirety of his life? His life, his work, his sacrifice, his righteousness. This is our hope. And so, do we not dwell and think deeply upon our salvation in which we have in Jesus Christ? Recently, I was talking with my son, John, and he raised a subject and it made me think I, I ought to look that up. I have to think about that. And so after our conversation was finished, I then went and I, I began to research and, and to look and, and, and to think and to form an opinion about and so that I could return to him and speak about that particular subject. And I often do that kind of thing. I don't know all the answers to everything. So I have to think. I have to form an opinion. I have to examine and research. But what about our salvation? Do we spend as much time considering and thinking and dwelling upon and searching deeply in the word of God concerning our salvation? I'd suggest to you that our appetites for salvation, for Jesus Christ, and for the joy that we have in our Savior are little in comparison to our appetites for this world. We long for a new car. We long for a new piece of furniture. We long for and make very difficult decisions about the divestment and and pursuit and division and giving and, and disbursement of our resources. And so that clearly we love what we have and possess. But do we love Jesus Christ and do we dwell upon him? Do we believe in him? Are we filled with joy because of him? A believer is one in whom the promises of God have become a complete hope and a glorious certainty and out of which have flowed initially belief in Christ and we have come to love Christ and from that faith and love, joy flows daily. Is joy in salvation flowing out of your heart daily in light of what Christ has done for you? 
If one looked at your life and examined your character, would one come to the conclusion, this is a joy-filled person? This person is filled with joy, and the source of their joy is Jesus Christ. If your spouse looked at you and said, if I were to ask the spouse, is this a joy-filled person, what would they say? If we were to ask your parents, children, what would your parents say? Is this a a joy-filled child? A child whose heart is filled with joyful consideration of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, dear friend, tell me about your pastor. Is this heart filled with joy? Continually. Consistently. Oh, how far we fall short of the glory of God. But joy is something that you and I should continually be working on, not only building up our faith, not only increasing in our love for Jesus, but filled up with the knowledge of what Christ has done, filled up with the knowledge of our salvation, such that we are filled with joy, joy inexpressible. That's the word Peter uses. Inexpressible joy. You ever had a moment when you missed someone or you were sitting next to your loved one or a child and you were just filled, something welled up within you. I have sentimental moments. I do. I have lots of them. When in a moment I I think about being absent from my wife or losing her or dying or her dying, horrible thoughts, I know, or of losing a child and how I'd respond to that, or I think of my friends and people who I love and what would happen How would I feel? And sometimes I'm just simply with someone. I'm so overwhelmed with joy and I love being with them. I'll try to be congratulatory or or, or I'll say something kind. There's that welling up within us of affection, of love. And we give expression in some way to that. Do you not? Do we not? We will say to one another, "I, I love you. We'll say to one another, I'm so thankful for you. Thank you. We'll say to one another, I've missed you so. It's so good to see you. But sometimes we are so filled with a desire of, of, of showing our affection to someone, we have, we have no words. We're speechless. That's what joy inexpressible is. It's a tangible thing. It can be observed. It can be seen. It can be felt. But it, 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 it lacks for description because there are no words enough to show it. Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. How can you describe it? How can I describe it? I am imperfect and, and, and distracted by a world and the pleasures of this world and, and so many things. But in my heart of hearts, I love Jesus more than anything. Don't you? Of course you can say that with me. Take everything away from me, and I don't want it. I don't want to experience trials and suffering, but take it all away as long as I have Jesus. As long as I have Jesus. There is the tiniest, smallest, most fearful, trembling grain in every believer that says, yes, even if I lost everything, as long as I have Jesus. I can face an uncertain tomorrow. I can face my future and long for heaven. 
In every believer, there is a feeling of love toward toward Christ that is sometimes speechless, uh, and it's it's marvelous in those moments when 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 God takes our the Holy Spirit takes our eyes off the world for a moment, and we think about the salvation that we have been given in Christ Jesus, and we're speechless, speechless. I hope God gives you many moments of speechlessness. Many, many moments in the days and months and years ahead. We'll, we'll need them for the days when, when it becomes harder and harder and harder to follow Jesus Christ. And perhaps even harder and harder and harder to find joy in this world. If there's one thing that's common, I, I, I hear in the testimonies of people in other lands who are imprisoned, or have been who have lost great things because of and, and resources and family members. If if anything, I would say that to a person, male or female, they're filled with joy. They are. There is a joyous a, a joyfulness about them. There is a radiance about them. They understand what is most important when everything is stripped away. And I'll tell you, dear friends, what we need to do is before that day, evil day comes, we should be active in stripping away everything that would take away from us or steal from us the joy of our salvation. Joy is, at the very least, gratefulness, it's thankfulness, it's a hopefulness, it's, it's happiness in Jesus. It's happiness in Jesus. It's a state of blessedness. It's almost impossible to describe our our deadness, God's grace, His forgiveness, our pardon, the experience of the new birth, passing from death to life, the obtaining of an incorruptible, unfading, inherited salvation reserved for us. Joy is is the great privilege of the believer that regardless of the circumstances of our lives, we have Jesus. And if we have Jesus, we have joy. Peter also says not only that it is joy inexpressible, but also glorious. We don't talk very much about glory. Glory is a difficult subject, I think, for many of us. What is glory? Well, we think of the glory of mankind and resplendent men and women dressed in wonderful costumes and or high and lofty position amongst leaders of our world. We don't think about glory in the sense of God. God is glorious. In other words, there is no being higher than he. He is filled and with, with and resplendent in glory. Meaning there is no shadow in him. There is nothing imperfect in him. Nothing less than what is white, light, glorious. The opposition to the light is simply darkness. Darkness, an absence of light, an absence of truth and of goodness. He is glorious. There is a radiating, an endlessly bright, ongoing with 
future realities for the believer. We have glory. We have experienced glory. We understand glory. We have seen glory. We know glory because we know God. And so we have joy because of the salvation we have been granted in Jesus Christ. And we have participated in His glory because our Savior is at the right hand of God the Father. Glory is not some emotional outburst that only lasts for a short time, but it's a joy and a glory that endures even in the midst of trials and suffering and hardship. And we rejoice in this very reality. He has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things are working together for our salvation. Is there not a source of joy in those statements, in those affirmations? Is there not joy to be found in Christ? Well, our salvation is to be enjoyed and believed and loved, but also it was prophesied. It was prophesied in verse 10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They prophesied about grace. And later on, he identifies that grace in, in verses, uh, uh, in verse 12, uh, who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You see, this, what they prophesied about was grace and of good news and of the gospel. And it began in, pardon me, Genesis chapter 315. When God spoke in the curses against Adam and Eve and what they would endure, and the serpent as well. And eventually to, 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 to Eve and to Adam he said, and yet eventually the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There is that first proto-evangelion, that first mention of the gospel, that first statement by God that he would save, that he would redeem the seed of the woman. It's you and me. Through the Holy Spirit, through the instrumentation of godly men carried along in his secret sovereign work of inspiration, the Holy Spirit spoke, and what did he reveal? He revealed grace and he revealed the gospel. For those who would see a dichotomy that the Old Testament concerns law and not grace, the New Testament concerns grace, this passage says there is no dichotomy. There is no division. The beginning of Scripture all the way to the end is about grace and the gospel. It's all about grace and the gospel. God has dealt one way with his church and it has not changed. There is no shadow of turn with God. He has done it by grace and he has preached the gospel. And it is the same from the beginning to the end. There are Old Testament prophets, many of whom said many different things. Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you in Deuteronomy a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him, Moses said. Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. Who is that? Jesus Christ. 
In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will itself endure forever. Who is the king of that kingdom? Jesus Christ. Peter called David in his wonderful sermon in, in Acts chapter 3. He said, David is a prophet who was seeing what was ahead. He spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, David, uh, Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, which I just read a minute ago, and he applies it to Christ and then says, Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on as many as have spoken have foretold of these days. And so the gospel of grace has been predicted or has been prophesied since the beginning. It has been affirmed within the New Testament and the apostles and the disciples. They say, as they look back and they say, the Old Testament, the entirety of Scripture and all of that it says, and even the new parts, as Peter references the letters of, P, of Paul, and even as, as, as Peter also references what Luke said in Luke 24, affirming it to be Scripture, the attitude of Scripture is that this is one long, consistent message. God saves sinners by grace. He will provide, has provided, and we have seen it, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have believed. From Moses to Malachi, all the Old Testament prophets, Luke 24 and Jesus in verse 26 and 27 explains to the disciples on the road, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Scripture is about Jesus Christ. The Word of God from beginning to end is about Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it is not only to be believed and loved and enjoyed, but also it was, it was prophesied. Well, thirdly, it is investigated. The Old Testament prophets did, didn't always understand the prophecies that they were being called to preach, and they didn't understand what it all meant. Isaiah prophesies of the birth of the Savior, the ministry of the Savior, His suffering, His death, extraordinarily so. It's unmistakable. We see Christ in Isaiah 42, 49, 51, 52, 53, 54. Did Isaiah understand fully all the significance of what he was saying? No. What he was prophesying was for you, for me. I don't know about you, but Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50, 51, 52, 53 have been things upon which I have stayed. I have been blessed time and again in reading what those passages say about Jesus Christ. In the Psalms, the king, the servant, the son, the kingdom, the reign of the son of God. All of these are very much before us. It, and there is an investigation that these Old Testament writers have have done the prophets who prophesied of that grace. They made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. If that is their attitude as they're recording Scripture and they have no idea who that person is, should we not search and inquire in the Word of God, seeking to know and increase in the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ our Savior? Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, I pray that you might increase in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we can barely read. And we can barely come to church. 
I'll tell you, dear friends, if you have no love of the Word of God and you do have no love of the church, there is no spiritual life in you. Let's be honest. Now, I, I don't want any tender consciences to think in any way that if I'm sick, uh, the pastor is speaking to me, I've, I've sinned against the Lord. No, if you're sick, stay home. Watch online. Open the Bible on your own. Seek the Lord. Lord's Day is for seeking God. It's for worshiping the Lord. It is that the entire day. Worshiping the Lord, resting in the Lord, doing works of necessity and mercy. But yes, there are sometimes providences which keep us away from the household of God. And, and certainly we need to have wisdom in, 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 in this. That's not what I was just saying. What I was saying is that if we have no love of the church, no love for the word of God, no desire to be found in the household of God, no desire to hear good, solid preaching and to sing solid songs that speak of the love of God, there's no spiritual life in us. If in the previous section, if there's no joy in Jesus Christ, if, there, if we have no love for Christ, if we have no faith in Christ, there is no spiritual life in us. Let's be clear what that means. You are opposed to God. You are, you are not in any way graciously being treated by God. Because God is, is making you feel the hidden evil of your own soul. Because you, 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 have, you have rebelled against Him. You've refused to believe his, in His Son. But, but take the counsel of the psalmist. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. Turn from your sins. Repent of your wicked ways. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then go on in faith and love. And find joy in Him. Well, all of these are things are true. It was also prophesied of our salvation. But also it was investigated, as we just said, Shouldn't we search the Scriptures too? We ought to study the Scriptures to be wise in respect to our salvation. This is the command of Scripture. And if you look at verse 12, it says that angels, angelic beings, living in perfect bliss with God, beholding the very face of God as holy angels, They are craning their necks to look into the salvation that we have been granted. It's past their experience. It's beyond what they understand. There were elect angels in heaven that were saved, that were preserved, that did not yield as Satan did. But there was Satan, Lucifer, who sinned against God from the beginning, who lied and deceived. And there were other angelic beings who also fell with him and fell into his deception. And the angels look at that judgment, look at that division between themselves who are blessed and those who are cursed. And yet as they look at humanity, they see that God in his grace has caused some to come to be born again to a living hope. What an extraordinary mercy. What a cosmic form of grace. And they are craning their necks and they searching and sifting and looking and should we not marvel at the salvation we have received? It is also 
It is, it is prophesied, it is investigated, but it is also predicted, this salvation. It is predicted by prophets and apostles and angels in heaven and on earth through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of Christ who is in them. It's an interesting way in which Peter says it, that Old Testament prophets were speaking predictively of grace, and they did so through the Spirit of Christ, who was in them. Christ was indwelling Old Testament prophets and persons through His Spirit, and through His Spirit, He was inspiring these men who wrote of Him long before He walked upon the earth. The Holy Spirit didn't come about until John chapter 14 through 16. No, not true. The Spirit of Christ was in the hearts of prophets carried along by the Spirit of God who wrote the Word of God and imparted grace to their generation. He was living and indwelling in the hearts of those who followed Him and who loved Him, who were carried along in that inspiring work of recording and preaching and proclaiming and prophesying the Word of God. In the inspiration and recording of the Word of God, there was a constant, overriding, intimate connection and interaction between the prophets who spoke and wrote in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the futurely manifested Messiah, was there informing prophets of old concerning Himself. In other words, Christ the Messiah preexisted long before He was made manifest in the flesh. Don't tell me that Jesus Christ was some something that came into being at the time of his inception in the womb of Mary. No. He was present long before this time, proclaiming proclaiming all that would take place concerning himself, proclaiming all that would be grace, that would be revealed as grace in the salvation of mankind Do we really believe in the perspicuity of the Word of God? That's a big word. And what we mean by that is that God speaks in simple terms that anyone guided by the Holy Spirit is able to read and understand the message of the Bible and certainly the way of salvation. Do we believe in that? Yes, we do, because the Spirit of Christ is present in the reading of the Word. And so on Sunday mornings, where should we be? We should be asking Spirit of God, help me to understand. Make my heart tender. Make me open. Open my ears to hear. Let me see and behold wonderful things in the Word of God. I hope that the ladies at the back of the service are praying for that very thing fervently on Sunday mornings. Lord, cause your Word to take root in our hearts. Open the mouth of those who speak. Lead us to be receptive and to hear. Fifthly and finally, the word of God or the salvation that we understand and believe. Yes, it was predicted, but it's also preached. William Perkins, a wonderful Puritan, said the word of God alone is to be preached in its perfection and inner consistency. Scripture is the exclusive subject of preaching, the only field in which the preacher is to labor. Oh, if a lot of what's going on in pulpits today is not preaching, dear friends. When I see politicians, I don't care what kind of church they're in on a Sunday and, and they're giving a talk during a service. I don't care who they are or what party they come from. It's an abomination to God. 
When a preacher stands before the church, opens the Bible, and then says all manner of things, wonderful sounding, but has no interaction with the Word of God, does not exposit that Word. It is as tinkling brass, clanging cymbals, and you ought to reject it and walk out. Don't go to a church where the Word of God is not preached and referenced and examined and where the spirit of what is being preached agrees with what is preached in that text. Not so long ago, there was a wonderful young man, a good-looking young minister. He came before the committee of our presbytery. He's a sweet man. I like him. Uh, But he came and he preached a sermon. And he's preached a lovely sermon about true things, true subjects, about faith. But the problem was that the passage that he preached from was not at all about faith. It was about Jesus Christ. It wasn't in any way, any kind, there wasn't any kind of reference to the necessity of believers to believe. It was only and exclusively about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so afterwards, after a few number of men had said nice things about the wonderful sermon that he preached, I said, I, 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 I appreciate the substance of the things that you've said. What you've said is orthodox. However, that's not what this passage is about. And I walked him through it. And he said, I understand. You're right. I'm inspired to preach better and just preach expositorily. It was a good interaction. It was a helpful thing. I had a lot to learn when I came out of seminary. I didn't know what I was doing when I first began to preach. But fundamentally, and first and foremost, your preachers ought to preach the Word of God. Otherwise, they have no business preaching. They should be silent. They need to learn. The word of God should be, and the preaching of the word of God should not be, it should be applied and and brought in, in doctrinal form to God's people so that they can have the substance of solid things to make sure that the truths contained in that word are grounded in the text of God so that the hearers can discern the, the character of the God, of the God in whom they believe from the word of God. And, and it is to be expressed in very plain terms, not in lofty speech. As Paul says, we came among you and we didn't use lofty speech. We spoke to you in plain terms, the truths of God. God help us if we don't do anything, if we didn't do anything, but at the very least speak the word of God in truth. Further, when you're looking for a solid preacher, you're not looking for so, or a church, you're not looking for something you... That's that's glitzy. I can't tell you how many pastors and preachers I see in my YouTube feed who've got rings all up and down their fingers who think it's somehow God glorifying to come before the church with all kinds of wealth all over their fingers and their clothing and their body and their ensconced in it. And somehow this is an indication of the blessing of God. No, it's it's an indication of the curse of God because you're, in a, you're, you're worshiping the idol which your heart truly loves. And now everyone can see you for what the wolf that you are. Every preacher, any preacher must preach the Word of God. They must preach Scripture and delve into nothing but what is agreeable to the Word of God. They must preach that Word and so that the people who hear that Word would say, yes, yes, I can see that in the passage that you've read.
Further, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, and, and it's okay, it's a good quote from him. I know I'm quoting a couple of times here, but he was a wonderful preacher, a Puritan as well, and he advised his hearers that many times you will say, come, let us go and hear such and such a person preach. He said, oh no, let us go hear Christ preach. For as it does concern the ministers of God that they preach not themselves, but that Christ should preach in them. So it concerns you that here, not to come to hear this man or that man preach, but you come to hear Jesus Christ preach. And if the preacher is preaching the word of God and the doctrines of grace, then most assuredly you're hearing Christ preach to your soul. Because he uses such weak vessels and the foolishness of our preaching to preach to his church. He is still speaking. And so, dear friend, if anything, this entire sermon in sum is all about the diligence that you and I are to express, both in pursuing joy and in pursuing the Word of God. We should desire to hear the Word preached. We should attend upon it with diligence and preparation and prayer. We should examine carefully what the Scriptures principally teach Our minds should be ready in the Word of God to meditate and confer on it, to talk about it, hide it in our hearts, bring forth the fruit of it in our lives, and we need to gaze deeply into our salvation, craning our neck like the angels, deeply looking, intensely active, and stirring up our hearts to seek to know the glory of our salvation and joy, rejoicing without limitation or expression in our God. Peter takes for granted He takes for granted that every single Christian knows that joy, that joy inexpressible he spoke about in verses 8 and 9. Do you know that joy? Gather your whole self, your whole heart, your whole will, your whole intellect, all your emotions and your effort to know him and make him the source of your joy. We need to consciously say, I'm finding too much joy in this place. I need to replace that with more of him. I'm allowing myself to be too full of this stuff. And it's worldly, and what I need more of is Jesus. So we gather up our whole self, our heart, as we've already said, our will, our intellect, our emotion, and we make an effort to make him more and more the source of our joy. Reminding ourselves, daily preaching to our heart, Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my hope. He is my Savior. It is He that I love. The Word of God commands it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say rejoice. Leave all the blinding lights and the pleasures of the earth, its loves and desires, fleeting joys. Go outside the camp, as the Hebrews uh, writer of Hebrews says. Go outside the camp to Jesus. Look into the depths and the heights of your salvation. See the great white throne and Jesus Christ upon it. He who helps you to fight. And in Him find joy. He will be your source of eternal joy. Put your phone down. Shut off the television. Close your computer. Take off your shoes. Walk in the holy ground of Scripture. And make Christ your joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would help us to make Christ our great joy. You have opened our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Now help us to behold him in his glory and to love and rejoice in him, our Lord and our Savior. We pray that you would help us to find great and inexpressible joy in Christ 
that we would take the time to seriously think about our salvation, which has been predicted and searched and prophesied and preached. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.